Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, November 12th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz. The editor of Commentary, our December issue, should be fully online today. Very exciting. All three of my, um, all four of us have pieces in the December issue. Uh, uh, the lead uh, is not by any one of us. It's by Jim Glassman, and it's about how and why his prediction, much derided uh, 20-odd years ago, that the Dow Jones average would hit 36,000, uh, why he made the prediction, why it was derided, and why he was in the long run correct, which is actually how he set it up, that it would be at some point hit 36,000. And um, basically the central point of the piece is that if you bet on the U.S. economy and on the United States, you win, and if you bet against it, you lose and that is what investing really is about in the long term. So that's a very exciting piece. And now we, we've got a whole bunch of others, but let's talk a little bit about the pieces that we have from my colleagues. First, executive editor Abe Greenwald, what's your piece in the December issue? I reviewed John McWhorter's uh, Woke Racism, uh, which, which we've discussed a number of times on the podcast, which a lot of people seem to be discussing. Um, and I think it was um, a very smart, important book. Uh, very briefly, um, I, I like that it's aimed entirely at liberals who are looking on at wokeness and while feeling sort of guilty that they're not more involved, um, are uneasy uh, over its aims and methods. And uh, he sort of explains to them why they are right to be uneasy about it. So that's uh, that's a, a Greenwald's among the elect, uh, which you will find at the top of our webpage at commentary.org. Christine Rosen, senior writer, what's your piece in the December issue? Hi, John. I'm I wrote about the media's portrayal of parents in the most recent election cycle, in particular, and how there was a kind of tone of absolute hysteria and and a penchant for calling parents, you know, violent extremist mobs of white supremacists, and how this was ginned up in large part by a media that couldn't reckon with with parents' real and genuine uh, dissatisfaction with the last year and a half in particular of schooling with the lockdowns and some of the stuff on critical race theory. So it's a, it's a harsh look at how our media has been writing and talking about parents recently. And Associate Admiral Rothman. You have the uh, longest piece, the biggest piece in in the issue among the four of us. What is your piece about? It is on the uh, various cultural products that uh, came out, most of which came out this year, but it's um, a recent trend to anathematize the 1990s on moral grounds from a perspective of the the new left-wing woke moral vision. Um, And uh, it talks about the ways in which the the left is sort of retroactively legitimizing and validating the critiques of that decade from those who lived through it at the time, almost all of whom were exclusively on the right. It sort of this campaign to anathematize this decade is uh, retroactively making the the right's case for them, uh, surprisingly enough. And it's sort of an effort to begin the process of popularizing this critique of the left as puritanical uh, in nature, which is a, a project I'm going to be engaged in for much of the next year. 
Okay, and uh, I have a piece too, and I don't even remember what it's about. This is the problem of writing uh, a lot of different things and getting old. I wrote it last week, and I don't remember what it is, and you don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell everybody what it is. You know, go ahead. You can say what it is. The difference I'm not between, kidding that I don't remember. I honestly, as I'm sitting here, don't remember. What the difference was. between uh, bad and uh, absolute and crazy, or bad and evil. Bad and dangerous. Oh, that, thank dangerous. you very much. Thank you. Or uh, right. So, um, yeah, the, actually arose uh, out of a podcast co- uh, conversation last week about the difference between the infrastructure bill, which is bad policy, and the Build Back Better bill, which I consider dangerous policy. And bad policy is something you can live with. Dangerous policy is something you can't. Um, or if you have to live with it, the consequences are going to be so severe that uh, that. Treating it as though it's a part and parcel of normal political practice is um, is a, is a terrible mistake. So thank you for reminding me, Abe. And that maybe flows into um, the very interesting uh, YouGov Yahoo poll that came out this morning uh, that I want to explore with you guys. Again, um, polls are to be taken with a grain of salt, but polls that show large large shifts in attitudes. Um, uh, that really can't be sort of made up, you know, 20, 30 point shifts in attitudes are things that need to be paid attention to. And this is about sort of Biden and how he is viewed and what he's blamed for and all of that. And here is the headline in in my view from this poll, which is that you ask a Democrat uh, or Democratic voters if they like the Build Back Better giant three and a half trillion dollar bill. In its original form, three and a half trillion dollars, or you just tell them the price tag, and you say it's three and a half trillion dollars, and it does X, X, and X. Seventy percent of Democrats say that they like it. Go back to them and say, "Would you like the version of this bill that's a trillion and a half dollars, not three and a half trillion dollars, but a trillion and a half dollars?" And forty percent of them say yes. Way more Democrats disapprove of the bill. Actually, that's not true. Like 30% disapprove. 70% approve at the higher level. 40% approve at the lower level. The same disapproval number is around 30%. And then others say they just they just don't know. Meanwhile, almost exactly the opposite is the case with independents, who don't particularly like the bill at its lower number, but hate it at its upper number. And so if I read this correctly, and you can sort of take take polls with a grain of salt in every way you want to, Biden is caught in a pincer. His base wants this bill to be as large as possible and will be disappointed with it if, in a miracle, because I think it will be a miracle if it passes, if in a miracle it ends up being the skinny mansion cinema acceptable version. Democrats will be disappointed. And independents, whom he carried in 2020 and whom Democrats need to vote with them because there aren't enough Democrats to get them over the hump, um, the more expensive it gets, the less and less they like it. So if it goes cheaper, Democrats get discouraged and disappointed. If it goes more expensive, independents flee in gigantic numbers. And either way, if you ask Republicans, what do they think of this bill? Is it $3.5 trillion or $1.5 trillion? 25% approve, 65% disapprove, something like that. So Republicans don't actually care what the dollar number is. They just don't want a big government bill, period. They're against it no matter what size it is. So Biden needs 
Democrats to be enthusiastic and independents not to hate it. Democrats are only going to be enthusiastic about it, according to this poll, if it's something that independents will hate and vice versa. So this is a big political problem. Like, I've never seen anything this stark. I've never seen, um, you know, we talk about how the country is divided, right? The whole point about independence is that they represent the part of the country that's not divided in the same way, right? They kind of, they're not really committed to one party or the other. They seem to flop back and forth between the parties. They vote different ways at different times and all of that. Um, so they are the they are the whip hand now in American politics, and 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 Biden cannot appeal to them without significantly screwing himself with the Democrats who form his base. I just want to note about this poll. Um, undoubtedly, it's going to be um, sort of at least partially cited by progressives to say that. Uh, that people want big things, you know, they want more ambitious, uh, more progressive uh, uh, things. Um, I think, although I cannot prove it, the reason that the base likes the bigger number is not because they want bigger, more ambitious things, because they know it burns moderates. Um, and and that is the motivation. So, the, so, they're, so the, you're saying the dynamic in the Democratic Party now has some parallels to the dynamic in the Republican Party that like Manchin Cinema, moderate Democrats and moderate districts and all of this are basically dinos. They're like dinos. They're they're versions of rhinos. And that Democrats now have a huge incentive, really committed Democrats now have a huge incentive to hate things because people who are nominally part of their party are made discomforted or discomforted by it. They don't want to participate in a culture war. They're trying to soften the divisions between right and left and to kind of slide through in the middle. And that is something that is intolerable to committed, uh, ideologically-minded Democrats. Well, I think the, so. Because yeah. the headlines about the, 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 the proposal have been about the 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 war between the moderates and progressives on it and, and how and how the moderates are stymieing it and 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 that they don't like it. It hasn't been about what's in the bill. So so what are they responding to when they're asked the question? I, right. I well, think a, it is. A, a key point then uh, in in the bill's findings are that among Democrats, Manchin and Cinema have approval ratings nationally of 11 and 13 percent. Now, of course, they're not national politicians. They're not national their, figures. Yeah, what's their unfavorability rating? Well, I I, I didn't see that. You're probably talking about like yeah, seventy percent no. that don't have an opinion. Uh, no, probably not. Actually, I'm not sure that's that's right. But it doesn't even matter because they doesn't matter what their national opinion. I mean, it matters if you're vain and you want you know. But these are these are state level politicians who are who are doing what they're doing in part to appeal to voters in their states. And and so it's interesting because the dynamic for for Manchin is maybe it's good for him uh, in terms of his electorate, which went for Trump by forty points, to be this unpopular with national Democrats. 
But this also, just one one thing to add to Abe's point, that this tracks with what we know about all the culture war issues, right? That that it's the extremely, it's the highly educated white liberals who are pushing an agenda that the other people in their own coalition, including non-white members of their coalition, agree has gone too far. So this, the idea that these sort of massive social spending projects would have a similar dynamic is, is makes sense. No, polls have been very misleading for Democrats recently in ways that I don't think they can recognize. Um, this very same pollster, Yahoo News YouGov, put out a um, <clears throat> survey um, two days ago, um, post-environment, post-election environment, saying um, just 5% of parents say schools are their top issue in 2022. 56% rate their schools COVID policies as excellent or good. 18% say that critical race theory is being taught locally. No, that's a red herring. It's not as a being taught isn't the issue. Informing the pedagogy that does result in being in what's being taught does, that's a digression. The bottom line is it says this isn't an issue. When your own eyes and your own lived experience and the own tangible costs that you just paid at the polls tells you it very much is. The same could be said for things like very under-discussed issue about the results of this past election, Afghanistan. If you were looking at the polling, you would say, well, more Americans want out than don't. But if you really analyze that polling, you would show you'd see a lot of non-response rates suggesting the salience of the issue was not really a big deal and that people were more energized by the prospect of defeat than the prospect of getting out placidly. And then you had um, Michael Hale, Holly Hale, one of the, how do you pronounce that, is one of the top advisors to Terry McAuliffe's campaign who admitted that his polling, internal polling for McAuliffe, dropped four to five points right after Kabul fell, and it never recovered. We had this Monmouth University poll that was driving me nuts, where Joe Biden was polling at 43% in this state, but somehow the governor was outperforming the, the president dramatically, and he continued to outperform at the polls. However, Joe Biden has 49% disapproval in this state. Guess how much of the vote uh, this unknown Republican candidate for governor in this state got? 49%. Or 48, sort of things yeah. that there's right. no 49. Yeah. It's the sort of correlation here that is hard to is hard to reconcile if you're only paying attention to the top line results and you confuse salience and relevance with popularity. So not the same thing. I mean, you know, speaking and and uh, I think Christine's point about how you know white liberals are convincing other white liberals to act in ways that might actually be deleterious with them with non-white democratic populations. Uh, Sean Trendy and uh, Patrick Ruffini have been doing work on precinct level numbers in Fairfax County, Virginia. And uh, so precinct level means that you can really sort of you know which areas in, in the county, the most populous county in Virginia, you know where where people live, and you know which 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 precincts are you know more heavily white, or which precincts are more heavily Hispanic, stuff like that. So, according to Sean, okay, in 2017, 2020, and 2021, he says most racial groups are a model of stability in voting terms. So, uh, African Americans in those years went 84, 93, and 81 percent Democratic. So. Um, so basically stable in the 80s, right, up to uh, low 90s. Non-Hispanic whites, 65, 64, and 65. Other, 85, 68, and 63. Okay, so basically non-Hispanic whites and, and blacks, their numbers are very stable. Hispanic voters, 
Listen to this. 2017, 82%. 2020, 80%. 2021, 49%. Okay? So he says you got to be careful with the numbers. You know, these are the, the, the margins of error are going to be very large with very small populations. But the point here is that there has been this presumption that if you talk liberal identity talk, um, this is something that will be pleasing to all groups and pleasing to Hispanics in particular. Um, and this is a mistake that uh, we made in 2016. I completely misunderstood. I, I assumed that Trump's extremely hostile language toward toward uh, immigrants and particularly Mexican immigrants would be have a deleterious effect with him among Hispanic voters nationwide. And it didn't help. He only got 29% of them, but it was exactly the same number that Mitt Romney had gotten in 2012. And then in 2020, there was this, in certain places, surge of Hispanic votes for, for Trump on the, on, the, on the border with Texas and in, in South Florida. Now, what's interesting about this is that it, it tells you something about the very term Hispanic and the aggregation of people under the term Hispanic or Latino or whatever you want to call it, which is that um, this is a bad grouping and it's been made in part to juice the numbers of people of, you know, Spanish, Cuban, you know, certain parts of Caribbean or uh, Central and South American origin to make it look like they are a block and that they are, you know, they, they number, you know, 12% or 13 or 14% of the population who look out for them because they're coming and they're, they're going to be a majority number and they're going to take whites down and all of that. And they don't function. They do not function as a recognizable block of voters anymore. They are. They have different motivations, different ideas, and all of that. But it is impossible right now for the Democratic Party to believe that because its entire functioning doctrine ideologically now is that everybody has their their primary affinity is is ident is identitarian and goes to race or gender or sexuality or ethnicity. And that is the dominating fact about them. And you look at them that way and you tailor policies that way. And here we have something where parents, for example, to get back to Christine's article, and so parents may have acted more as parents than they did as Hispanics, if they're parents in Fairfax County. Like they ended up 30%, you know, like a gigantic shift away. What, what did it? What did it? Well, maybe it was that the schools stink. And they were going to make the Democrats pay for making the school stink. This and is the this is really the left the the socialist left wing critique of identity politics on the left is that they've lost touch with every other aspect of your life that plays a much larger role in your decision making process than your accidents of birth, which seems intuitive, but it's utterly lost on the modern left. And their their contention is obviously that class is the the primary distinction between us and all all decisions are we're homo economicus and all our decisions are economic in nature and you know that's sort of marxist analysis of of human activity and social organization but nevertheless it's a strong critique that 
it makes sense that your primary concern, if your kid's getting not getting a good education, is not where your grandparents were born, right? That well, seems Christine, Christine, you made a point in a blog post you did yesterday, the day before yesterday, on uh, that you know the major the the major source of the incredible blowback to the 1619 Project's effort to center identitarian politics, that the American experiment was totally and exclusively about identitarian politics, came from, as Noah would say, a radical leftist socialist website. Yes, the World Socialist website. No, they they offered the first and most compelling critique of that project, obviously, as Noah says, motivated by the idea that it's class conflict that is how we should understand and structure our analysis of, of the past and the present. But they're constantly frustrated by the identitarian uh, motivation because what they see it doing is preventing black and white working class, uh, black, white, brown, any color in the rainbow, uh, working class people from coming together and fighting, you know, capitalist power structures. So, but their critique said, you know, this is still an abuse of history because it's many strands that cause these conflicts. There are many, many things that are not being looked at. This very simplistic narrative uh, is compelling to the people who are making the narrative because it makes them feel uh, better, makes them feel superior to the people they're criticizing. And it, 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 it smooths over the complications of the historical past in order to make an ideological argument in the present. And they did I mean, that. Look, it, that's what they're doing. That's the Latinx yeah. problem. And, you know, it's very interesting because if you want to see elements, and Abe, Abe has been discerning green shoots like this, elements of the crack up of this alliance between the identitarians and the socialists and the you know there are parallel historical parallels all over the place in the 1960s the student movements of the 1960s you read like Todd Gitlin's history of the SDS or something like that you know the hardline maoist terror you know pseudo terror whatever the SDS and people like that who like wanted to use extra legal means and blow things up and you know do all that um and were actual active supporters of totalitarian regimes in Cuba and in China and in Vietnam were maoists and hoists and cheists and castroites and all of that were disgusted and sickened by the touchy feely free love you know, long hair, let's dance and take drugs. They like they were serious revolutionaries. And they had to make common cause with these hippies who made them sick because the hippies were not serious and all they wanted to do was get high and have sex and like, you know, steal money from their parents and, you know, buy buy drugs and not bring about the revolution, the actual physical revolution they wanted because they were interested in a revolution in consciousness. And that divide on the left, there appears to be some part of it going on today. Except there's no hippie element, as far as I can tell, today, right? Well, the identitarianism would be, in my in my, my estimation, I that agree. what you have here is income inequality Western society unjust, even climate change, like capitalism is destroying the atmosphere. We need direct action to deal with these things. And then you have, call me Latinx. I'm not, you know, I have no gender. 
you know, let, let's focus on how I can call myself anything I want to, that these are two wildly radically different impulses, though they are both, They're both one revolutionary. Is emo- well, one is emotionally revolutionary and even socially revolutionary, and the other is politically revolutionary, and, ter- and they are not the same thing in any way, shape, or form. A world that is designed to sort of make, make it possible for people no longer to have a gender is not a world in which you are blowing up power plants so that they can no longer generate electricity or energy that you think is dis- destructive of the ozone layer. Yeah. They, ha- they have both, <clears throat> excuse me, both elements have kind of always been uh, in, in hardcore leftist movements uh, to some degree, like, you know, even in... in uh, among the earliest radicals in Russia, there was there were all sorts of um, ideas about redefining family and and marriage and women's roles and things like that. The Soviet Union invented affirmative action. They created right. an affirmative action program to elevate the you know local ethnicities to take positions away from you know czarist elements. Found out they were all incompetent and liquidated them. But uh, the, initially, the intention was to uh, you know localize through eth- ethnic groups, affinity groups. Yeah. Um, you know, the well, Marxist look, project. It was to look, capture them, you know. But look, right. as early as early as the 1820s, and this is this is the end of War and Peace. At the end of War and Peace, Pierre is adjudicating a fight, an argument in revolutionary circles between people who want, you know, democracy and bringing about certain types of democratic changes in Russia in the 1820s, and people who are like, no, we have an unjust regime. We need to do something almost you know mil- militant in order to overthrow it you know the book ends basically with the clear suggestion that pierre who is a you know who is a an aristocrat is going to end up uh getting arrested and sent to siberia as a decemberist that was a revolutionary movement of the 1820s in in russia so i mean it's a very important point that this is the nature of revolutionary change is that is it does it go at the economy? Does it go at the power structure? Or does it go at the roots and, you know, sort of like the the more ingrained roots of society that don't are don't aren't actually necessarily, you know, sort of like designed by law, but are but need to be pulled out from the root if you're gonna change human nature from the root? And so, you know, this is two more than two hundred years old this impulse and and at when it happens that's when the left starts falling to pieces although can i just to add to that i think this is why though the the real danger and this used to be the thing that conservative minded people guarded against uh, vigorously and we're not doing as good a job because of the fracturing of our own coalition uh seeking extra legal extra outside institutional ways to blow up the system so i think all the chatter on the left about you know uh, packing the court uh abolishing the electoral college ways of of dismantling the institutions that aren't giving them the results that they want and on the right you know questioning the results of every single democratic election so that those impulses are really are really a, an expression of frustration with the existing system that although they're not saying blow it up it, it's a kind of a uh, wonky way of doing that, right? And I think the progressive left's uh, global, the climate change crisis stuff, the the means that some of the the folks on the left want to change uh, things are extra democratic. They're not they're not process oriented. They're more revolutionary, and and they do capture some of the identitarian politics people in their net when they're making those arguments. Right. Well, let 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 me let let me talk to you uh, as I've been talking to you for the last. 
a week, week and a half about our friend David Monson's book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths, because it deals with many of these themes. This is uh, organized as a daily a kind of economic, <laughs> political, daily devotional, single page uh, chapters on 250 themes in uh, economics and liberty and the philosophy of liberty and how it connects to faith and politics, uh, supported by quotes from great philosophers, great economists, great thinkers, um, providing a full-throated defense and argument on behalf of free enterprise, the exercise of liberty, and how these are connected uh, to traditional faith. Uh, That is David's book. It uh, arises from the work he's done with the Bonson Group, his multi-billion dollar financial services and management company. Go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore, your independent bookstore, pick up a copy of David's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. Today, uh, it, like the Bonson Group, is the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of today's thinking on financial matters. So uh, I highly recommend it. And that's, again, There's No Free Lunch by David Bonson. Um, So... uh, Abe, interesting stuff going on in New York. Speaking of, you know, uh, revolutionary impulses, um, uh, Eric Adams, the incoming mayor of New York City, who will be mayor on January first, um, started out as a uh, as an anti cop cop, uh, became a policeman, and then immediately started an organization called One Hundred Black Men in Law Enforcement Who Care that essentially took aim at the NYPD and its practices. Then when he decided to run for mayor, essentially ran as a law and order mayor um, and is now leaning pretty heavily into this because this week, what give us a sense of what happened this week. So on Wednesday, uh, Eric Adams had a sit down at Brooklyn Borough Hall with Hawk Newsom, who is the New York uh New York Black Lives Matter co-founder. Um, and the, the funny thing is I, I remember this guy from 2020 because when when uh, the media would make the argument that, well, in discussing Black Lives Matter, we have to we have to be specific about who we're talking about and which which branch and and which group. And they would because many of them are, are, are not saying crazy things at all. And they would try to have this guy, Hawk Newsom. Um, to 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 prove their point that he he was among those um, not not saying violent uh, 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 dramatic things. So on Wednesday, what he said was in response to uh, Adams' vow to bring back the anti crime unit uh, to New York p- policing, which was the subject of all sorts of you know uh, uh, police protests because uh, anti police protests because a lot of conflicts regarded with the anti-crime unit had sort of gone bad. Um, uh, so in response Blas- to that, de Blas- Hawk Newsom- de Blasio had disbanded it. Right. De Blasio had disbanded it. Yeah. So Hawk Newsom said, uh, if they think they're going to bring back, if they think they're going back to the old ways of policing, then we're going to take to the streets again. There will be riots, there will be fire, and there will be bloodshed. So an overt threat. Um, Adams has been uh, tough in his response um, appropriately. Uh, he was then and he's continued to be. Uh, he's not going to give in to this 
kind of thing. Um, my thought is that this guy, Hawk Newsom, and, and whoever else agrees with him, they think this is still 2020, and it is very much not. Um, I'm sure there will be some incident caught on video, or maybe several, uh, that will be sort of, you know, make its way through the usual channels and media and activism, and there will be some stir. But people underestimate the degree to which what happened last year in terms of social justice and Black Lives Matter was a kind of perfect storm uh, between the pandemic itself, the lockdowns, uh, Trump being in office. Um, there was there was that's not going to happen again. Plus, we've now had more than a year of this experiment in uh, therapeutic chaos and and what not to do uh, in response to such things. Americans, as we've seen, have are clearly turning on it. Uh, defund is 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 toxic. Uh, critical race theory, toxic. Wokeness itself is, you know, becoming toxic. Um, so I don't think I, I, there, there will be some stir, but it's not going to there's not it's not going to have the kind of support any any sort of uh, action similar to what he's talking about is not going to take place. Everybody's just teeing up Adams to do everything he promised to do, but to aggravate the right people. Right. So it seems like based only on the covers of the New York Post and the Daily News having the exact same take on this issue, which is unusual for New York City residents, that they're kind of spoiling for a fight with this guy and hoping Eric Adams engages. And Adam, Adams seems very inclined to do so because it would only polish his brand. And then you have you know, de Blasio saying, oh, your five-year-old isn't going to get to go to the bodega unless he has vaccination proof. That's an easy one to get rid of. And everyone's going to be like, OK, good. Restore uh, gifted and talented programs. Good. Do all this just reverse everything that that he's teeing up in the final days to show the you know New Yorkers that yeah we're not going to focus on social engineering. We're going to make sure you don't get pushed in front of a subway car. That's but, the business of government now, and I think public will like it. But he's got a problem in his new AG because that guy is just whose name I'm now uh, blanking. It's a, on. Not attorney general. You mean the you mean the district attorney for New Sorry, York City? Sorry, the DA, right? For the, Manhattan, the, yeah. The Alvin DA Bragg. for Manhattan is totally on board with bail with with the more liberal progressive approach to criminal justice, bail reform, and New York. Look, the, the good thing is that New York has, I agree with Abe, is wait has woken up in its own way to what uh, real crime looks like when you have a a city that is given up on on dealing with these kinds of crime there are two women raped yesterday in central park alone like and one of them was attacked by a man who had just been released you know from from prison so there there is a real fear again about crime um and then not just in new york in many cities but if you have da's who who are running on the idea and winning on the idea as they did in philadelphia and as they have in new york that you don't need to prosecute as many crimes we have too many prosecutions he that's setting up a different kind of battle more serious battle that he's going to be having with the mayor down the line but by the way that 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 again if noah's right that actually helps adams uh gives adams a foil uh the way in 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 previous <laughs> mayoralties oddly enough there have been weird foils. Rudy Giuliani made Con Edison, the electric company, a huge foil because you know there there was a there were there were blackouts and things like that, and and the bad things would happen. Con Ed was a badly run company, and he would basically just come down on Con Ed like crazy. 
Um, because, of course, Khan was something he didn't control. So therefore, he could say, don't blame me, blame them. They suck, all of that, you know. And similarly, if bad things happen and Bragg mishandles the criminal aspect of this, that gives Adam a, that gives Adams an opening to say, I am here to protect you. That guy is making life worse in New York City. Is it not part of his team? You know, these are wildly separate things i mean the the da is elected here uh but you know he doesn't work for adams and it'll just be it, it, adams is being handed i think noah's right is being sort of softballs are coming at him from all sides but uh in a in a political culture that has been dominated by lunatics and uh, morons for the last eight years and if he just isn't a lunatic or a moron and displays a certain amount of common sense that says i'm on your side uh, there's too much crime, there's too much disorder, kids need to learn better in schools, we have to take masks off, and we don't need insane financial policies that will injure our ability to collect, you know, to collect the the fees from Wall Street and stuff like that to keep the city going, um, and I want the subways to be clean. Like, you know, just saying that, even if you don't really get it done, just having somebody who will say that's what he likes or wants will have an enormously positive impact on the mood of the city. It will, but just just for the daily lives of people who are living in crime-infested areas right now, look to San Francisco. They are just now getting around to to recalling Chisa Boudin, who basically ran on a platform of "I'm so progressive, I think most crime isn't even crime." Let's you know, let's all just have a big group hug. And it's gotten so bad that they've finally gotten the signature. Citizens have revolted, but it's taken time. And during that time, people have lost their lives, they've lost their livelihoods, they've been attacked. It's been bad, and so I think again to look to these DA people need to start really thinking about those elections the same way they do about mayoral ones, because those institutionally, they're making serious everyday decisions that put people back on the streets who are dangerous to the public. Right. So I want to talk about the changes from uh, 2020 that Abe uh, mentioned, that this is not 2020. I want to focus particularly on these two trials that are going on right now. And it's very, very, very weird, okay? Because uh, the entire sort of political class is focused on the trial, the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Seventeen, he was seventeen years old. Uh, he had um, uh, an AR-15. He was in the middle of a riot, and he ended up shooting three people, two of whom died. And the entire political class is focused on the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Meanwhile, in Georgia, finally. There is the trial for the murder uh, of Ahmed uh, Orbery, who was jogging in the neighborhood, was chased by, basically chased down by three rednecks who shot him and killed him. And in the aftermath of that, weird stuff happened because uh, the killers were, had some connections to local law enforcement in Glynn County. Um, made no arrests. Uh, people were like... Uh, were dissociating themselves or saying they couldn't be involved because, you know, somebody was somebody's kid and somebody else was something else and all of that. Uh, white guy shooting a black guy and the, and the, and the case is now, you know, in front of a, is, is now uh, gone to trial, but nobody's talking about it. And everybody is talking about Rittenhouse, a case in which a white kid shot three white people in the middle of a riot that erupted as the result of a police confrontation 
with a black ex-con uh, who who was uh, credibly had been credible been arrested and credibly accused of uh, domestic sexual abuse and domestic physical abuse of his children, who was at the in the course of his, the the moment where he got shot evading police action and trying to stuff his wife and three children into a car and flee the cops. And in a three-minute confrontation, he ended up getting shot uh, several times. Jacob Blake, he's alive. He's, he's, he's parallel. A riot erupted. It was six weeks after the George Floyd killing. Um, and then there was this confrontation between a white kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, a, a, a paranoid schizophrenic pedophile, uh, named Rosenbaum, uh, a some kind of weird Antifa medic, uh, and then a third guy, and um, they're all white, and and they were in the middle of a kind of anarchist psychotic riot in which all law and, law and order had broken down. Last year, the country would have been fixated on the Aubrey trial. This year. Because nobody's really defending the guy, the guys who did Aubrey. There's no defense. Like, but that's it. You've identified the the key wouldn't have mattered factor. last year. Wouldn't have mattered last year. Mm, possibly, and what's it might more, have actually had more matter. cultural salience because you probably would have had some some really unscrupulous people defending him. So this is sucking up all that oxygen. Okay, but or at but least here's saying my, you know yeah. presumption of innocence. Yeah. I, I honestly, I know I'm monologuing here, but I want to say. The country should be focused on Ottoman Aubrey. It was it, it this is a, a tragedy, a horror, and a nightmare. And it is actually it actually fits the liberal model of the problems in race relations in the United States. A black guy is in a neighborhood where people who people, you know, uh who have no right and no business monitoring the behavior of other people in this way decide he's in the wrong place, he shouldn't be there, they go crazy. They shoot him dead, and then there's kind of a conspiracy to keep them from being charged with killing the kid. There's a, I mean, there were like two, three months went with with all these officials in the county saying, "I'm not touching this. I can't go anywhere near this," and all of that. It is like an axiomatic case if you want to make the case that America is a country with deep racial scars and deep racial problems. That is what the Amon Arbery case is. But because it doesn't, and this is where we should get into this, Noah, but the Kyle Rittenhouse narrative is much more seductive to people because there are two sides and because conservatives lined up behind Kyle Rittenhouse and liberals seem to have lined up behind Kyle Rittenhouse should be convicted of murder. Why liberals have lined up behind Kyle Rittenhouse should be convicted of murder seems entirely based on the fact that conservatives have lined up to say Kyle Rittenhouse used justified force. And that alone is – but on the other hand, and then I'll stop like blabbing, when I read Twitter and the people who are commenting on this very airily, it's like they don't know that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't shoot black guys. They think Kyle Rittenhouse shot black guys. He shot white guys, white guys who were there to make trouble in Kenosha because there was – a riot and there were and 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 anarchy had broken out and sort of they were there to do whatever it is that people do when they want to be involved in riots like looking around for people to kill which is pretty much what it looks like this guy Rosenbaum was doing when Kyle Rittenhouse shot him so let's talk about this weirdness 
I, it just strikes me as insane that a country that is obsessed with true crime, obsessed with true crime podcast, has this case in Georgia and is ignoring it in favor of this case in Kenosha. Yeah, it seems pretty simple to me, and I think you pretty much outlined it, is that no one is owned by the Aubrey trial. It's pretty cut and dry, and the narrative that you presented actually would would have caught on had it really you know, been part of the commentary around this, that there was sort of a conspicuous effort on the part of prosecutors to avoid charging what they eventually charged. Nevertheless, that didn't catch on. And the reason why this one has is because there are, as you say, two sides. It's a proxy for cultural combat, which is all that enlivens anybody on, for example, social media. And the social media presents a business model for you know, attention-starved, engagement-starved news outlets to get that kind of engagement. The Associated Press has currently has a tag in the online you know, news aggregation business. You tag things to put them in certain categories. And the tag on the Kyle Rittenhouse coverage for the Associated Press is racial injustice. How on earth that fits into that category, only the pathologies on social media can explain. And it's part of the reason why it's all driving us absolutely crazy. But as you say, you know, the the fact that there are two cultural uh, sides here at war with each other is the issue. It has nothing to do with the case. The case is just immaterial. It's just a proxy for that ongoing fight. But the Arbery case also actually shows something else that I think the progressive left, the woke left, doesn't want to acknowledge, which is the universal, the fairly widespread horror at what these men did, um, which includes people on the right, people on our side. I mean, it, it, as you said, John, this was this this seems to be racially motivated. It seemed to be completely. You know, there's video footage of it. It's a pretty clear cut case. The conspiracy that went on among the local prosecutors is horrific, and you're not going to get that many people defending these guys, even on the right. So that actually proves the narrative that conservatives tend to have about the country, which is that these the idea that structural racism is causing this sort of thing to happen every day. No, in fact, it's it's rather rare and it's pretty obvious when it happens and the system should punish people when they do that. That's that narrative. So it's not as productive. And, and to the Rittenhouse case, if you're going to defend if, if you're not going to defend um, the guys who were killed by Rittenhouse, then you're basically sanctioning all the rioting and looting because everything grew out of this idea that these riots were were justified and justifiable in, and the people who participated in them were justified in their actions. But I also think part of what's happening here is we're seeing the difference between a pre-January 6th and a post-January 6th world. Um, because after January 6th, the idea of violent right-wingers um, became uh, much more salient. I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a very, very good point. But I mean, I will say, having spent several days watching the proceedings uh, in this case, I mean, several things uh, manifest themselves, one of which is that um, uh, I think Trump and the Trump world did create in the minds or in the minds of people, impressionable people like Kyle Rittenhouse, this idea that uh, there was something, you know, that there was that something terrible was going on in the country and that uh, it was time for people to stand up and, and fight back against this disorder and decay. And um, I do not think there's anything wrong with people 
ordinary citizens inserting themselves in moments of violence and crime uh, to protect their own. In I, I, I I'm not saying this because I want to be praised for it, but in July 1977. Uh, I lived at 105th and Broadway in New York. I was 16 years old. The um, the looting broke out uh, as a result of the blackout of 1977. And I stood with 12 guys from my building in front of our building with baseball bats at until like 2 o'clock in the morning to make sure that the looters who were on the other side of Broadway didn't come to our side of Broadway and start breaking into the stores in our building and maybe like raiding raiding our building. We didn't have a gun. Nobody had a gun, and uh, that was sufficient. So, I, I it's very easy for people to say Kyle Rittenhouse shouldn't have been there, shouldn't have been there, and all of that. But on the other hand, he really probably shouldn't have been there. That doesn't mean that Joseph Rosenbaum, uh, this guy, the Antifa medic who pointed a gun at him, um which the prosecutors seem to suggest uh, because he didn't shoot at him when uh, when the when the guy with the gun, whose name I can't remember, gross something, was 15 feet away. He only shot at him when he was uh, charging at him with the gun when he was three feet away, that if Rittenhouse had really felt himself in danger, he would have shot him when he was 15 away as opposed to when he was running up to him with a gun in his hand three feet away. When you hear like arguments like that, you really start to wonder at this kind of airy fairy intellection on CNN and other places. Like, yeah, he wasn't really at risk, or wasn't he's an idiot kid who shouldn't have been there. Which I sort of agree, and I also sort of don't necessarily agree. Just because he was an idiot kid who shouldn't have been there, you know, you can say that about anybody in any crime in a high crime area. Like, what what the hell were you doing there when you got mugged? You should know. Go home and stay home and don't go out at night. That's not, you're, you know, we're not supposed to say it's okay that the streets of a city have been turned over to the criminal element. Or to yeah, people nobody who was wanted... supposed to be there. That shouldn't be difficult to say. Right. <clears throat> um, nevertheless, I would also like to add that a person, the persecution complex is such currency in this country that nobody is satisfied by the impartial conduct of justice when when it when justice is delivered i mean again back to that ap category racial injustice you are working yourself up for the idea that there there can be no justice in this country think back to the the conviction of derek chauvin for the murder of george floyd what were the speeches that that joe biden and kamala harris gave right afterwards the structural racism is pervasive and it, it's invading every institution in this country the system had just worked and they were delivering a speech on how the system doesn't work that's a pre-conceived conclusion that is exists independent of any outside evidence. And it's the sort of thing that the, the Aubrey trial, the, the trial of the killers of Ahmed Aubrey, will not satisfy. This one will, because no matter what happens, somebody's ox is going to get gored. Look, you know, I, I've been monitoring the Rittenhouse case on the invaluable uh, legal insurrection site, and it's very, it's valuable because... You know, uh, Bill Jacobson, who runs it, really does aggregate fascinating information in the worlds of critical race theory and the academy and all sorts of, you know, the use of lawfare and all of that. And he, you know, has this very active audience. And I'm reading the comments. It's interesting because talk about the administration of justice. So there's a case against there's a you know, he was indicted. Rittenhouse was indicted on two charges of murder and various other things. And there's a prosecutor named Binger or Binger. I can't don't even know how it's pronounced 
who was prosecuting the case. He didn't bring the case, you know, the case. He's prosecuting the case and he is doing, I can't tell if he's doing a bad job or not, or whether it looks like he's doing a bad job because he really has a lousy case. And he got the case and they got the indictment and he's now prosecuting the case the best that he can. But in fact, it's a lousy case. And so he is doing what he's supposed to, you know, but he he's clearly and the judge gets mad at him and screams at him. And that's very interesting and all of that. But part of this weird thing about the divisions in the country is this is a classic standard thing, right? There are two lawyers. This is how our system works. You have an adversarial system. You have someone representing the government, someone representing the defense. And the government lawyer is making an argument if you are on the side of the defense that you don't like. But that is not sufficient for the audience of legal insurrection who spend, who've been spending day after day doing nothing but insulting this prosecutor and saying he's a jerk and, you know, he, what an ass. And, you know, like he, I, he should get that sneer off his face, whatever. All this stuff because, you know, in fact, people don't believe this is why it's important that we have these systems in place where there's an adversarial system and stuff like that because left to your own druthers, you don't actually think that the person who is making the argument that you don't like has any right to make that argument. Nobody in nobody in, in society actually believes in open – it's very hard for people to believe in open art. You have your say, I have my say, and then it goes to a jury and they're adjudicated. It's if you make an argument I don't like, you're evil. Even if you're making the argument because it is sort of like part of your role as being a person in our society that that's, that's your job. And if it weren't that guy, it would be some other guy doing exactly the same thing. That's the point about being an administrator of justice or being part of this adversarial system. And we've lost that too. Or maybe no one ever had it. I mean, to be fair, maybe it's expecting too much to think that people you know, would have respected the, the, you know, would have respected the DA in another case you know, similar similar to this one but i'm just struck by that fact that this guy's just doing his job the best way that he knows how and granted if he does his job really well kyle rittenhouse will go to jail for the rest of his life um and so if you don't want that you don't want him to succeed but he he represents the system that indicted him he doesn't he is not like an independent actor just going at Kyle Rittenhouse for nothing. And we've lost some ability to make those but divisions. That, I, I would say that it's a really important point because if you think back to, you know, 20 years ago when the whole jury nullification crisis, remember that, where there were juries taking these broader principles of like there, and I have sat on juries in DC where there are people who clearly believe this to be just, who will say, I don't care what he did. If he's a black man, I'm not sending him to prison. There are too many black men in prison. And that principle is what guided their ability or inability, if, if uh, as I saw, uh, to actually judge the evidence in front of them. But I think Social media scrutiny gives a uh, puts a spotlight on the people who are other parts of that process. It puts it on the judge, puts it on the prosecutor, puts it on the defense attorney, and they are constantly the source of a conversation that is no longer merely local. It's it's global, and they can't not feel the pressure of that. And they are treated as personalities in a drama on that platform in a way that is in many, many cases, not good for our justice system, because the pressure that even if they don't act on it, they know is there. Um, the pressure juries now face for the same reason. Like these are all ways of tiny corruptions of the way justice system used to work. 
not that it's ever been perfect, but I think it's bringing a new kind of pressure. And and that has to be brought into consideration when we're looking at trials like the Rittenhouse trial. Right. And you know what? Everybody needs to take a chill to, to have a good, you know, be lean back and try to relax a little bit because all this stuff is making you crazy. And if you have an X chair, it's kind of easy to do that sitting right at your desk. Okay. You, you never really look forward to sitting in your office chair, but you might if you get the X chair because your current office chair can't give you a massage while you're working, but my X chair can. Your current office chair can't heat you up or cool you down, but my X chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed at Maine for X chair. And have I told you about the dynamic variable lumbar support that you get, which makes it possible for you to put a support for your lower back in exactly the right spot so that when you lean back, you're supported and can be comfortable. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. Take my advice. Try X chair. Risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call one 844 xchair for $100 off your order. Xchair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchaircommentary.com. Now let me move on to talk to you about Aura, okay? Aura has changed, is a way of dealing with the changes in the internet over the last decade when it comes to security tools. They've stayed the same. The internet has gotten more sophisticated and made it a lot easier for people to defeat security tools. Um, but, you know, what uh, credit card com- companies are trying to do a good job of protecting you against fraudulent purposes, purchases. But what if a scammer files for unemployment in your name or your social media accounts are hacked? Aura's protection goes well beyond your credit card, all in one easy-to-use app to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to frauds and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name, Aura is easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. Aura is a new type of security service that protects all of your online information and devices with one simple subscription with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone. Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues for a limited time. Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash commentary. So, do we have anything else to do? We have anything else to talk about? How do we feel about Donald Trump saying, telling Jonathan Carl that uh, because uh, look, because he heard that uh, Mike Pence was being well protected on January sixth, it was okay that a crowd was chanting, uh, "Hang Mike Pence!" His his vice president and the vice president of the United States, and then the president of the Senate presiding over the counting of the uh, or acceptance of the electoral ballots. Not good. Is that that's the answer, right? Not good, bad, very bad. Um, I, it's kind of that was actually a very charitable um, d- description of what he told John Carl. I'm trying to be. Uh, yeah, I'm, you, I'm just. I'm really just, have I'm, to. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be. You know, like a like a, a gentleman. I urge everyone to listen to the audio because it's it's positively chilling. Um, yes, he said. Carl asked him, "Were you worried about him during the siege? Were you worried about his safety?" Meaning Mike Pence, and Trump said, "No, I thought he was well protected, and I had heard he was in good shape." And Carl goes on because he heard that chant, those chants. That was terrible. I mean, 
To which Trump replies, he could have, well, the people were very angry. They were saying Mike Pant, Mike, hang Mike Pence, Carl says, deadpan, shocked. Because it's common sense, John, Trump replies. It's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, you know if this vote is fraudulent, right? How can you pass a fraudulent vote onto Congress? And he goes on for sentence after sentence after sentence, nursing his own grievances. Um, but yeah, his instinct was to make ex- ex- excuses, I guess is the best word you could say, for these this uh, riotous mob with bloodlust in their eyes. Uh, because they were his riotous mob with his bloodlust in his eyes. Um, it is sociopathic. You know, I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, ordinarily one one might think that, um, you know, li- liberal media figures, although John Carl's a slightly complicated figure. Uh, I first met him because he edited a conservative publication at Wesleyan. So just to just to make clear that he is he, he doesn't he doesn't emerge like a chrysalis from liberal culture. I mean, he was actually part of the conservative counterculture on campus in the 1980s. Nonetheless, um, uh, you know, liberals reporting on Trump and his bad behavior and all of that is just going to help Trump, right? It's just going to help him because you know liberals don't understand who what, what Trump's connection is, and no one's going to believe them because of the Russia hoax and other things that they perpetrated. And so this, all this is just going to make Trump stronger uh, as he considers, or I assume is going to run in 2024. And I, I want to push back on that a little bit because the simple fact of the matter is that um, if the details that come out over and over and over again about, you know, the last year of his presidency, if you can't pretty much with the exception of the Abraham Accords, if you can't come up with good stuff that Trump did that was helpful and what you hear about and what the discussion really centers on is the steel and the steel and the steel and they stole it from me and they stole it from me and, oh, let's let's go back and sort of talk about COVID because I said you should drink bleach or what. I know he didn't say that or whatever everybody wants to say. It's like, if nothing good is said about the Trump presidency for the next three years, including by Trump, who doesn't want to talk about the presidency, he wants to talk about the injustice and unfairness done to him uh, as a result of the election. Um, I don't know how wa- wildly stirred up Republicans are going to be to sort of like drag themselves over glass to get him reelected or to make him the nominee. Like at some point, this conversation has got to turn to, boy, he was great. And it wasn't just that he was great because he owned the libs, or it wasn't. Just, it's got to be. <clears throat> we want to go back there, and even well, can't, story. Can't he win by default? He I can. Mean, he can. There's no conversation to the, the. There's no alternative to that conversation. There's no. Well, he was bad for X, Y, Z reasons. Or here's this alternative to Donald Trump sitting right here, and here's this Republican willing to serve as an alternative to Donald Trump. That doesn't exist. Okay, let's just let's just put it this way. Uh, if this were the parallel to the last election <clears throat> or something like that, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it's November 2013. Nobody even had a clue that Trump would be the nominee in 2016. So it's a long way till it's a long way to the Republican convention. And I understand looking at things, you know, in a flash, in a snapshot picture right now says X. And if there's one thing we should know about American political life, it's that things don't freeze in place, even if we can't imagine how they freeze in place. There's nobody wants to peak too early 
obviously. And there's a long time before we get into the primaries for 2024, but not that long, one year. Um, and Connor Friedersdorf over at the Atlantic had an interesting suggestion saying everybody on the right needs to coalesce around Ron DeSantis right now, immediately. Get over whatever your problem is with Florida. Get over your problems with Ron DeSantis, your COVID you know, pathologies. Who cares? He's the viable alternative to Donald Trump. Get with it. Um, and the piece received a sort of tepid response from the left and no response from the right. But I'm curious as to what you guys would think about that. I think it's crazy for anyone to coalesce around anything. There is no coalesce. All This whole idea that the right needs to coalesce to destroy Trump. So that's not going to happen, obviously. Whether it should or shouldn't is a different issue because we're talking about politics being something that happens in the real world and not something you want. And if you want to walk around saying things should be X, but but they're Y, that's fine. But it doesn't actually address the fact that people are going to have to make real-world choices in real-world time and all of that. And my view is uh, anybody who thinks they know what is going to happen in 2024 is a lunatic because nobody knew it was going to happen in 2016, in 2015, I mean, two weeks before Trump decided to come down on the escalator, Trump was a fantasy. Trump's candidacy was a fantasy. Almost everybody who covered him, everybody who knew him, everybody who thought seriously about these matters and that even covered him didn't think that he was going to do it. And if he did, it would be a joke. So I don't know what's going to happen. And all I'm saying is he's frozen. He's frozen in a previous conversation. The whole point about him as a candidate is that he inaugurated a new set of conversation points about America and what was going on and what needed to happen that uh, apparently the right was too sclerotic to understand really had purchase, including us. And, and so he wasn't just himself coming down as a reality star to be a lunatic and yell at people on stage. There was something going on there that had to be taken account of. And the idea that the 2024 election is going to be run on the question of whether or not the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump seems to me to be crazy. That's how he wants it because he's monomaniacally obsessed with it. But that is not what the American people are going to want or that Republicans are going to want, even though right now it looks like they don't want anything else where they can't coalesce around anything else. That would be my, anybody else? Also, well, I mean, <clears throat> let's imagine that everyone listens, heeds this call, coalesces around DeSantis, and then Trump picks him as a VP candidate. Right. <laughs> which, I, which I think is a distinct possibility. Well, how about how yeah, about everybody coalesces around DeSantis and then DeSantis gets prostate cancer? I mean, I don't know. I'm not summoning anything on him. You can't coalesce around anybody three years before the convention. You don't know. He, you know, he may hit a kid with his car. You know, he may come there. A story may come out that there were banking problems. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, one might have thought at one point that Andrew Cuomo would be elected king of the planet. And nine months later, he was out on his ass. And, you know, I mean, like, that's, that's American politics. Remember the Avenatti presidential boomlet? I mean, let's go through the lunacies of the last three or four years if we have to. I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know, people need to be more modest in their presumptions that they know what's going to happen based on what's happening, uh, you know, at present. Because 
We just keep making that mistake all the time. I wrote a book in 2005, published in 2006, that said Hillary Clinton needed to run against Rudy Giuliani in 2008. So, you know, my poor publishing house lost a lot of money. I didn't because I got the advance and nobody wanted to read the book and it's an embarrassment, okay? Because I thought I could put on my political prognostication hat and look in a crystal ball and say, obviously Hillary Clinton's going to be the nominee and the only person who can beat her is Rudy Giuliani. Well, guess what, everybody? (laughs) Guess what? Just to answer my own question, uh, obviously Connor Friedersdorf writing at The Atlantic isn't talking to the the average Republican primary voter. He was talking to to Democrats. And subtly, without saying as much, trying to convince them not to do what they always do, which is to say this next Republican is the worst Republican there has ever been. And the last Republican was better by contrast in these ways. And you can see the ways in which Donald Trump will be easily rehabilitated as a national conservative, as a guy who favored tariffs, as a guy who wanted to tax corporations more, all that, you know, sort of the fusion, you know, triangulation stuff that the infrastructure, all the triangulation stuff his administration initially tried. And he's trying to tamp down that instinct. And to I suspect he will not be successful there, but he sees that instinct coming and he's right. I mean, look, the left has done an inestimable favor to Ron DeSantis. One of the reasons that Ron DeSantis is the most popular Republican in the country, aside from Trump, has nothing to do with how what a great governor he has proved in Florida or because of the policies that he's enacted. It's because the left went after his jugular and he didn't blink or flinch and he even welcomed the attacks. So in that sense... They could do Ron DeSantis no better good than to continue focusing on him as the root of all evil uh, because A, he isn't. B, he's a very able and canny politician, as we've learned. And C, he does have some kind of a story to tell that, you know, it'll be an interesting question whether he looks at this and says, I know Donald Trump wants to be president. He'll be mean to me if I'm and all this. But this is my main chance. This is the moment that I can really do this. I saw Chris Christie failed to uh, you know failed to um jump on his chance in 2012 for whatever reason he failed to jump on it and now he's sitting on abc tv getting into stupid pissing matches with trump and uh and and went nowhere in his political life and his political career went nowhere and i'd like to be president and if the main chance for me being president is 2024 i'm going to take it like that's the thing that's missing from these conversations about how no one will run against trump I mean, there are people who look at political reality and political life and say it's now or never. Like, this is my, this is, this is it. And maybe, as Trump himself said, you know, I have a 20% chance of winning, so maybe I should try because I'm not probably going to get better odds than 20%. And then he won. Like, if you're not willing to risk, you're not willing to dare, you're not willing to try something that looks hard, then maybe you shouldn't try to do it at all. I don't know. Anyway, with that... Hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday for A. Christina No. I'm John Pothortz. Keep the candle burning.